Well, friends, um, having agreed to speak on this subject, Definitive Sanctification, Romans 6, I then wondered whether I was wise. Um, I think I may have preached in the last verse. I don't think we would have much disputing over the meaning of the last verse. A lot of the rest of the chapter is a difficult chapter, and... um, But we trust that the Lord will help us. I think looking at this has certainly helped me understand the chapter more than what I did uh, before. And uh, we'll look to the Lord to bless us. Um, I will... I've divided my address vaguely into two parts. Um, Looking at the definition of roughly what we're talking about. And then... We will go from that to actually going through Romans chapter 6. And when we go through Romans chapter 6, although um, it is divided, we might see into two parts, most of it will actually focus on the first 14 verses. We might see even the first 11 or 12 verses. And my hope is that it will um, interact, obviously, with the text, with our theology, and will be... Uh, of practical benefit for us. Well, definitive sanctification is a relatively new term. Professor Murray, I think, probably first coined it in 1967. And since then, it has been generally recognised as Reformed theologians as uh, an important point and something that is useful uh, as we try to distinguish between what we might call uh, an initial work of God and that ongoing progressive sanctification that we tend to think of when we think of sanctification. That really is what Professor Murray was seeking to do, to draw a distinction, a clear distinction between an initial work of God and the ongoing progress. Now, not all have found that distinction helpful. R. Scott Clark of Westminster Seminary, California, and Heidelblog, um, he, amongst others, questioned the helpfulness of it all. And he notes, if you read Murray's articles in volume two of his uh, works, that... Murray's um, writing is wholly based on the exegesis of Scripture. We would think that would be a good thing in many ways. But it may be a a defect in these articles in that it does not tend to interact with our confessions, with the older Reformed theologians. It certainly opens him up to to, uh, questions It did do that, and that is one reason why the likes of Scott Clark and others question. I hope to interact with some of the older writers, as you'll see, and indeed with their confessions, to try and show that it has a place in our thinking. So we're going to look at, briefly, a definition of definitive sanctification, and then we will focus on Romans chapter 6. And... In examining this passage, uh, 
Really, I'm wanting to look at definitive sanctification's relevance in encouraging progress in that ongoing battle against sin. So they're not two separate categories. One is encouraging the other. Well, let's come to the definition. While we would all agree, I think, that progressive sanctification is that ongoing work of the Spirit whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. I don't think any of the Reformed have a problem with that idea. You can't say the same when it comes to definitive sanctification. And all those who advocate it as a theological category have agreed that it's something that happens at the beginning of the Christian life. So it's right at the beginning. That's what we're dealing with. And if you read some of those who write about it, they have a tendency to speak of it as positional or as reflecting a person's status. Now personally, I haven't found that very helpful in the way of putting it. And I think it actually um, fails to do justice to all that it is involved. Yes, there is an aspect to it which involves position or status. God's people are saints. They have been set apart to be the Lord's. In the same way that the pots and pans and shovels in the, in the temple were set apart to God. They were just pots and pans, but their use meant they were set apart to God. They were holy. And all God's people as saints are holy. They have been consecrated to God. That's part of what we're talking about. It's a truth. That's part of what definitive sanctification involves. But if you read the writings of Murray, then you'll see it doesn't really do justice to all that he is dealing with. He notes that the language of sanctification is used with reference to some decisive act that occurs at the inception, that's the beginning of Christian life, and one that characterises the people of God in their identity as called effectually by God's grace. It would be therefore a deflection from biblical patterns of language and conception to think of sanctification exclusively in terms of a progressive work. And he goes on and he speaks of every believer having undergone, quote, a decisive and irreversible breach with the world and its defilement and power. Also, a decisive and definite breach with sin that occurs at the inception of Christian life. So, at the beginning of Christian life, the believer is set apart to God and translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's true. But there's also the fact that the power of sin has been broken. And the believer is a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A radical change has taken place in your life 
It's not just that you have been lifted up from one side of the room and put in another or put in a different category altogether. You have in some way become a new creature. All things have become new. You have been born from above. That makes a tremendous difference, does it not? So it is more than just your status or the position you're in or the label that's put upon you. It's something which indicates that you not only have a new status, definitive sanctification, but really you've been introduced into a new state. There's been a change of state. You're no longer in a state of sin. You've been brought into a state of grace. And that change is closely connected with the point of union with Christ in effectual calling. So that's what we're dealing with. Something at the beginning is not just a positional thing or a status thing. God's people are brought into a new state. And... The usefulness of speaking of definitive sanctification and giving it a label is that it emphasises that a radical breach with sin has taken place. And that's what Paul says in Romans 6. However we interpret the detail, that really is the message. There's been a radical breach with sin in the past and that should encourage And it must encourage the pursuit of holiness. So that really is what Romans 6 is arguing about. And in doing so, it therefore is exposing and condemning a carnal professor. Someone who says, I'm a Christian, but they go on and live in sin. Can you be a Christian and go on and live in sin? Well, you think of 1 John 3, 9. Of how it talks about he who has a seed of God within him, he cannot sin. It's saying there's something wrong if we are going on living in sin, indifferent to sin. So, some of the alarm bells that people have when they hear of definitive sanctification, they are perhaps ringing. In the minds of people who might be unfamiliar, perhaps with the whole of likes of Murray's writings, um, the whole of his background, which would be much more like our background, where we'd be conscious of that daily battle against sin, there is a rejection of antinomianism. Um, it may be that those who are complaining or uh, anxious about these things, they have not... Um, consider that or they have seen how some perhaps have jumped on certain ideas regarding either definitive sanctification and, and or union with Christ and it has led them into their thinking has wandered off from scripture into other er- errors um, some of the teachings of a, a man called Norman Shepherd that some of you may have heard of who had strange views of the covenant and A bit like the the new view of Paul and justification, which is a denial of justification through faith alone. There are some who may, certainly one or two people I was reading about, they were saying, well, you can trace some of it back to 
uh, Gaffin and his thoughts on union with Christ and what Murray was saying about definitive sanctification. I think if they were reading Murray and reading scripture, they'd realise their problems are elsewhere. They've got things wrong. It's a valid theological concept. I hope we'll see that. Indeed, it's interesting to note that this definitive aspect of sanctification is not altogether absent from the Westminster Standards. Chapter 13 of the Confession. They who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart, a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The larger catechism, sanctification is a work of God's grace whereby they whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God. Having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts and those graces so stirred up increased and strengthened as they might more and more die to sin and live unto, and rise unto newness of life. Now, did you notice the word further sanctified in the confession? So something at the beginning, and then it grows from there. And in the larger catechism, the spirit implanting the seeds of all saving graces, is that not a radical thing? You know, we think of a believer who dies. You have the death of a believer, you rejoice. You think, the battle against sin is over. What a change! From what you are now to being perfect and holiness, that's an amazing change. I'm just thinking now, is that a greater change than to have the seed of life and all graces implanted? There's a thought. Isn't that a more tremendous change to go from death to life and to be growing. So there you have it. Um, an initial act of God. There's the radical change that Murray and others speak of. It's noteworthy, the Puritan Walter Marshall in the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification notes that Quote, we cannot attain to the practice of true holiness by any of our endeavours while we continue in our natural state and are not partakers of a new state by union and fellowship with Christ through faith. End of quote. This includes failing hold of the fact that in Teralia, quote, through Christ we are dead to sin and alive to God, that our old man is crucified and that we live by the Spirit. Now, given that Murray apparently reckoned Marshall's work one of the best on the topic of sanctification, it's difficult to see that really his reproach is radically different. It was a new, a new way of putting things, but it's not really that radically different. And indeed, if you, any of you have uh, James Fraser of Allness's book, The Scripture Doctrine of Sanctification, and if you look at that... Um, really you've got an exposition of Romans 6 to 8 you'll find that on most though not all things for example the old man is he dead or not um, apart from that by and large you might say 
Murray's following what he wrote 200 years before. That's interesting. He's not that radical and new after all. Well, let's turn to Romans 6. In writing to the Romans, Paul is showing not only that we are all condemned as sinners, but that God has provided a free and gracious way of salvation in his Son, Jesus Christ. We are justified, sola gratia, sola fide, by grace alone, through faith alone. There's no place for works in our justification. Faith is not a work, it is a gift of God. So, in the Gospel, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 5, 21. That's the context of Romans 6. And having established this wonderful truth that we are justified because of the righteousness of Christ and that alone, apart from works, Paul deals with an objection that someone might raise to a free justification, that it encourages sin. You know, well, if we are justified graciously by God, the more we sin, the more God's grace is revealed and showing how willing he is to forgive us despite our sin. And Romanism and those who advocate a works gospel have used this objection that Paul mentions here as an argument against scripture truth that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ and his work alone and Paul answers uh, what Paul does is he um, deals with these questions you've got two questions in our passage the first one, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 1. Verse 15, what then shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. And he's dealing with this objection. He asks these two questions. He provides answers. And he explains two truths. Verses 1 to 14 that the believer has died to sin and cannot thus remain living in sin. And then verses 15 to 23, that the believer is a new master and thus does not serve sin. And these are two of the aspects of this radical change brought about at the inception of spiritual life. Other passages emphasise other aspects. We might say the passage here doesn't really emphasise the fact that of regeneration and its effect, we would have to look elsewhere for that. But here, these two things are noted. Well, let's look at verses 1 to 14 and the bulk of what we'll be doing is looking at these verses. The believer has died to sin in his union with Christ and therefore pursues holiness. The question, verse 1, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? Um, is met with an emphatic no. God forbid. Paul recoils with horror 
at the very thought of it. And every believer will do the same. Horrified at the thought that people could use a gracious salvation as an excuse for for, uh, going on in sin. And Paul goes on and he shows that that is incompatible with what it means to be a believer, one who is united to Christ. And that's something you should know, the Romans shall know, because he goes on and says, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer then? Know ye not. You should know this, he's saying. So it's not something new that he's telling them. What's he telling them? Well, put bluntly, Paul declares, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, while it's true that in the ongoing process of sanctification, you and I have to die unto sin and live unto righteousness, this, as Fraser of Allness reminds us, is not what Paul is here saying. Rather, he is saying that the believer is dead to sin. Now, death and life can't coexist. You can't be dead and alive at the same time. You're either dead or alive. There is no in-between. That includes the idea of being dead or alive with regard to something. You're either dead to something or you're alive to something. You don't have an in-between state. So Fraser can say, quote, If a man is actually dead, that doth not admit of degrees or progress. If he is once truly dead, he cannot be more and more dead. So being dead to sin is Paul's, is central to Paul's thinking here. And he's not talking about a a process. Yes, we have to die to sin. We have to seek to kill off sin more and more. But he's talking about us being dead to sin. Indeed, given that the tense in the original is aroist, which is like a point, as opposed to an ongoing thing, usually a point in the past, it may have been clearer to our ears at least, if uh, it had been rendered, died to sin. How shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? You and I would get it. There's a definite point in the past, hence the use of the aroist. They died to sin, and that means we are presently dead. Someone died, you would say, they are dead. I think in our thinking, although we know that, somehow when we come to read this passage, we don't actually think of it in these clear terms. We get a bit muddled up. And that's why perhaps the word died would have been uh, more useful. Nothing wrong with saying they died, they are presently dead. If you're dead, that means you've died. But it it would stress it to us, I think, better. So in other words, the believer has entered into a state of being in which he is dead to sin because he died to sin. And that's Paul's way of speaking of a once-for-all breach with sin which constitutes the believer's new identity in Christ. If he died to sin, he cannot live in sin. 
He's been transferred to a different realm and freed from the reign or dominion of sin. It no longer has a hold on him. Thus, for an individual to live in sin is to betray the fact they are not a true believer. Now, how this radical breach with sin comes about is further explained by reference to baptism. You go that in verses 3 and 4. Now, you note that so many of us, as were baptised into Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, there are those... Uh, who favour baptism by immersion, so you've got to do that. And they often look at these verses to justify their position. Well, they can try and do that from other places, but this verse has nothing to say about the mode of baptism. Um, aside from the fact that the imagery does not fit, because people were buried in tombs, sideways, not in graves, so they're going sideways rather than going down and rising again. The imagery doesn't have anything to say about going down into the waters of baptism and up again. Apart from that, it's evident that Paul here isn't discussing the mode of baptism, but its meaning. And he is telling us that baptism signifies union with Christ and sharing in the blessings and privileges of Christ. Murray points out that this must mean union with him in all that he is and in all phases of his work as mediator, end of quote. And that includes union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And you have that referred to in verses 3 and 4, baptised into his death, and of how we have risen up from the dead. You'll notice... Um, the, although he talks about being baptised into his death he actually doesn't go on and say we're baptised into his resurrection he just goes on and goes away from baptism to the, the idea of death and then resurrection thus it can be said that the believer died in Christ's death Fraser of Allness puts it this way believers are invested in a fellowship of interest in his death and in the benefits and happy consequences of it. So that as he died to sin, dying in their place, so by virtue thereof they are dead to sin and made free from its reign and dominion. And so we read, as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. You think of the Father displaying his glorious power and raising Christ from the dead. That's mentioned in Ephesians 1. But you know that power, that mighty power that was evident in Christ's resurrection. Well, as mentioned there, as Christ was raised up from the by the glory of the Father, so the believer has risen with Christ into newness of life and shares his resurrection life. Indeed, it's not so much that we live but that Christ lives in us. Galatians 2.19 It was this power that Paul wanted to experience more of. I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Do you want to know more of that life, that spiritual life that he communicates to you? You have been 
risen with Christ. Ephesians 2 speaks of the same sort of thing. And you are a new creature in Christ. You have life in Christ. He has shared his life with you. And you want to know more of that life and more of that power in your own soul. Now, Romans 7 and 8, there Paul makes it clear that sin is still an ongoing problem. So he's not saying, it's not a problem, don't worry about these things. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there has been a once-for-all breach with sin. So though sin remains, we might say the sin-dominated man has gone. You're no longer what you once were. You have new life in Christ. You're a new creature. You're born of God. And the sign of the spiritual life is turning from sin to God. And daily we are to go on as those who are new creatures in Christ and live up to our privileges, fighting sin and pursuing holiness. Now, as Paul speaks of baptism, what he's doing is actually reminding us of one of the ways in which we can improve or benefit from our baptism. We might not remember it, doesn't matter. You may or you may not. But remembering that you have been baptised is the important thing. Because it reminds you not only of your covenant engagement to be the Lord's, but it reminds you also that you're united with Christ. You're one with Christ. His death was your death. His resurrection, your resurrection. You died to sin and have risen to new life in Christ. And therefore it's a contradiction to go on and sin. Knowing our identity in Christ, we are to live up to it as the risen, renewed people of God. Perhaps that's something we don't emphasise enough in our preaching. That baptism is preaching to us constantly of that new identity, of our union with Christ, that we are risen with Christ, that um, we must therefore, and we will, Live as the people of God, as a holy people. Now in verse 5, the imagery changes. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul uses the word implanted. But although the picture changes, the focus remains the believer's union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now the word implanted literally means a close union or being side by side. And therefore it can become thought of as implanted. Sometimes it might be translated in terms of engrafting. But really what it's saying is it's talking of a close union. So it's stressing the closeness of the relationship between the believer in Christ. And you'll notice the word likeness in the likeness of his death. So that's showing that Paul is speaking of a close parallel between Christ's death and the believers. They're almost not identical. Christ literally suffered and died. You didn't. He did. He physically suffered and died. He rose from the tomb on the third day. 
but we suffered and died in him. It can be said that you suffered and you died and you rose again in Christ because you are united to Christ, you are one with Christ. He is your covenant head. And it's this spiritual idea of union with Christ that's the important thing. Fraser notes, the future tense shall be in regard to the likeness of his resurrection and suggests that he uses the future because this resurrection life in the believer has but begun and much progress is still to be made. Brethren, we are not as we shall be. But one day he shall appear and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. You're a new creature. You're a child of God. Sometimes it doesn't look that way, does it? Sometimes you don't behave that way. And soon you're going to be six foot under. And then you certainly won't look like a child of God. What a difference the resurrection's going to make. The physical resurrection. Then it will be seen that you're one who did die and rise with Christ. And that that resurrection life is coming to the fullness of expression in the heavenly life of glory. Only in the resurrection state of glory shall we be conformed fully to Christ in his resurrection. Verse 6 continues to unfold the explanation of the effects of the believer's union with Christ and his death and resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Perhaps this is where it gets at times controversial. I don't think it should really. Two phrases require explanation. Firstly, there is the statement, our old man is crucified with him. And herein lies the question, is the old man dead? And 50, 60 years ago, if you'd asked that question, everyone would say, well, of course not. The old man's this problem I have within, I'm struggling against him every day. And you can go away back into all their old writers, and that's the way they speak. And Fraser speaks in the same way, surprisingly enough. Um, he speaks in that way um, of the old man, the remnant of sin within us, the indwelling sin, he's seeking to overcome the new man, the principle of life in the soul. He's become old, says Fraser, presumably implying a weakening of the old man, but he remains alive. I was looking at something that Boston wrote yesterday, and he was saying the same sort of thing. And I was thinking, I'd better not reading these things, because it's too late to change what I've gotten my paper anyway. But I don't want to change what's here. Um, part of the Confusion arises because there is the exhortation to put off and put on, put off the old man, put on the new man, in the lights of Ephesians 4.22. And you and I can understand these things, and the idea of this wrestle and struggle with sin. I do think, though, it would be clearer and better... To see the struggle against sin in terms of the flesh and spirit as you have it in Galatians 2.15. Rather than talk of an old man and 
a new man. I think a lot of it is just to do with labels. I think you actually have people arguing about things and they're actually talking about the same thing, but they want about a different name to it, really. Um, here's three reasons why. First of all, the word crucified with him, literally it's co-crucified, it's in the aorist tense, which points to a once-for-all event as opposed to ongoing crucifixion. So, he has, an old man was crucified with Christ, is how you could translate it. And it's the same tense you've got throughout the passage. Why take it in a different way here? Secondly, the whole context is that of the once for all death and resurrection of the believer in union with Christ. And being united with Christ, we share in that death and resurrection. And it seems strange to introduce the idea of indwelling sin into the passage at this point and then ignore it for another 20 or 30 verses and then bring it in again once you get to about verse 14 of Romans 7. Why, is, why, why, you know, why mention it briefly? Go back to the theme we were talking about then come to the problem of indwelling sin. That's reserved for the next chapter. A third reason, the references to putting off the old man, putting on the new man in Ephesians 4.22 can be translated not as a command to put off and put on, but as statements of fact. And indeed that's what you've got in Colossians 3 verse 9, which is very much a parallel passage. Colossians and Ephesians seem to be uh, written both from prison at the same time to similar groups. You could say that if you read Colossians and Ephesians, you see there's, there's an awful lot of overlap between them. If you want to find more reasons why, read Murray's Principles of Conduct and you'll find his arguments there. So the old man is better understood as of the old ego, the old self, of the unregenerate man in his entirety as opposed to the new man, the regenerate man in his entirety. So Sinclair Ferguson can say the person, can speak of the person I was in Adam. Remember that's what's getting spoken of in at the end of Romans 5, contrast between Adam and Christ, that person that I was in Adam, which has gone forever, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Well, you may or may not take these arguments, but however we view it, I think we all agree sin's an ongoing problem, and that is the main thing, however we label it. Now, the purpose of this crucifixion is that the body of sin might be destroyed. You'll find the likes of Calvin, Fraser, Hodge, they talk about the body of sin as a figurative reference to the mass of sin. But it would seem to be better understood actually as of the physical body, called as a body of sin as it is under the control of sin and misused by sin. Uh, Fraser is very much arguing against P. 
people saying, sin is rooted in the body. And that's, I think, that's why he is driven to say, look, the root of it's in the heart. And that's true. And so he rejects the idea of body of sin as referring to the body, the physical body, as under the control of sin and misused by it. But I think that ties in with what you have in verse 12 with the phrase mortal body. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it and the lust thereof. And they talk about yielding our members, the bits of our body, our arms, our eyes, our minds, yielding it to sin. So what we have is a reminder that the decisive break with sin doesn't just affect the soul, it affects the body. Because the body, in a sense, is being liberated from the gross misuse there was in our pre-converted days. It doesn't mean to say that your flesh doesn't still misuse your body, or you don't misuse your body, because we all do in different ways. We sin through our bodies. Yes, there are sins which might be exclusively of the mind and soul, but most in some way or other, have reference to physical things as well. The word destroyed can mean render inoperable, barren, or disabled. And again, it's an, it's an era with subjunctive. So that once again is sub- suggesting a once-for-all event. So, um, our old man was crucified with him, we might say that the body of sin might be destroyed, that the body of sin might be destroyed, but that was a purpose in the past, that we might no longer serve him, the sin now. So our bodies through which we sin and by which sin so often expresses itself are no longer bodies controlled by sin, that has been crucified with Christ. Now our bodies may serve the Lord and not sin as formerly. Then that the unregenerate love and serve sin. The new man in Christ hates sin and is no longer the bond servant of sin. Now what's the result of all this? It is that we are freed from sin. Verse 7, freed from sin. That word could, is a perfect tense. You could translate it, we have been and are freed from sin. Something in the past with ongoing results. The word freed itself can mean, is usually translated as justify. And most commentators, while seeking to preserve this legal or forensic idea involved, don't believe it refers strictly speaking to justification. Murray points out that the death of Christ has brought a judgment on the power of sin, similar to it bringing a judgment on the prince of this world. Now is the judgment of this world, now is the prince of this world cast out. The same sort of idea he's saying. So as the death of Christ ends any claims that the law or Satan may have over us, so it also does with the power of sin. 
It's interesting. Virtually throughout the whole chapter, the word sin has got the article with it, the, and it's used in the singular. And uh, some of the writers suggest it's really thinking of this sin. It's, it's personifying sin as if it's a person. In the same way that wisdom is personified in the likes of um, Proverbs 8. Sin. He's the tyrant that's trying to lord it over you. So, the believer, having died to sin and risen with Christ to new life, is legally acquitted from any claims the tyrant's sin could pretend to have on him. In that sense, he is freed. Before he was under the penal consequences of sin, including enslavement to sin, Christ having dealt with sin and its penal consequences, and he's sharing in this through his union with Christ, sin no longer can claim to be his master. He is freed from sin. Ferguson uses an illustration that's helpful. He, talks, he speaks of a South Korean golfer who was playing in America, got his call-up papers, and that was the end of his golf career, back to Korea to serve in the army. And he suggests, well, if he'd only become a, an American citizen before the call-up papers were received, he could have turned around and said, I'm an American now. You've got no claims upon me. I'm keeping playing golf. I'm not going back to Korea to be a soldier because I am now an American citizen and in the same way the claims of sin and Satan belong to the old man you're a new man you have been freed in Christ now think of that Korean he still speaks Korean he probably liked Korean food and Korean culture and it probably took him a long time to become Americanized. Isn't that like you? You're fighting against sin. You've got old habits. You've got old problems. Old ways of thinking. Old ways of speaking. There's been a change but there's a lot that has to be unlearned. So it's not denying that the background and old habits will affect the Korean or us, but it belongs to a new realm where Christ, where, well, it would be the states that ruled, not Korea. And for us, Christ is our master. Righteousness and Christ of dominion. And if that's the case, how can we go on continuing in sin, careless about sin? That is incomprehensible on the other hand what an encouragement to fight sin and seek to live as befitting citizenship in the kingdom of Christ and righteousness verse 8 Paul points out that not only has there been a death but the believer shall also live with him that's with Christ that doesn't refer to some future bodily resurrection but to the present as Christ rose to a new and never-ending life, so the believer shares in a new and never-ending never life in Christ. 
And this the irreversibility of Christ's triumph over sin in the grave is then asserted in verses 9 and 10. Christ, who rose from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Christ, our sin-bearer, suffered the wages of sin and was subject to the power of death. And the resurrection is the proof that he paid the full debt owed to the law. He's received the wages of death in full, has vanquished death. Death can no longer dominate him. And the implication is that as Christ's death and resurrection are decisive and unrepeatable acts, we would all agree with that, for he died to sin once and now lives to God, verse 10. So the believer's death to sin and resurrection to newness of life is decisive and unrepeatable. You cannot go back to what you once were. A change has taken place. Now, if you read the scriptures carefully here, you'll note that Paul doesn't speak of, in verse 10 of Christ dying for sin, but dying to sin. Did you hear that? Christ died to sin. Do you feel uneasy? I think all of us feel a bit uneasy because we're thinking, wait a minute. Christ is wholly harmless, undefiled, apart from sinners. It was impossible for him to sin. That's what our theology teaches us. He died to sin. So you'll find the likes of Haldane, Smeaton and Hodge assuming that the reference is to Christ dying for sin. Dying to deal with the problem of sin and the guilt of sin. But there's a difference between dying for sin and dying to sin. And if you read Fraser in this place, he makes that very clear. Um, Whilst maintaining the personal sinlessness of Christ, Murray and Hendrickson point out that Christ's life on earth was constricted by the position he took in bearing sin. Whereas by contrast, as the risen and glorified, his present life is a life unhindered with the burden of his people's sin. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. There was a heaviness. There's a difference between Christ's life on earth and the joy and the gladness of his resurrection life now. In the state of his humiliation, he always lived to God. He always lived to God. There was never a point where he didn't live to God. But now as the risen saviour, we say there's a freedom in living to God. He doesn't have that big burden of sin. It's like you... The difference between running a race, you've got a rucksack full of stuff in your back and you're struggling. And it's off your back now. It's a freedom you're going to have there. So he enjoys the favour of God forever without the consequences of bearing sin. And what a contrast that is to the three hours of darkness on the cross. And the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died to sin. And these things are gone. Now what's the implication of all this for us? 
it is that the believer is told, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You'll notice we're not to become dead to sin, but we're to appreciate the fact that we have died to sin. That's what you're to remember. You did die to sin, not become dead to sin. And that reckoning is important. And it's pastorally encouraging. First of all, it assures God's people that sin cannot reign unto death in the believer. The believer may die. But death is in the hands of Christ. It's his servant. To bring his people further on in the way to glorification. So nothing can separate us, not even death, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He is the keys of death. Revelation 1.18 Sin cannot reign unto death in you though you die. That's encouraging. Death's not, death is an enemy which is in many ways overcome and you can know victory. 1 Corinthians 15 Secondly, it encourages holiness. As a believer remembers his identity in Christ, it encourages him to live up to it. So here's something the shield of faith can wield in the face of temptation. There's no hope of overcoming sin if it is not true that we have died to sin. But knowing that it is true assures us that sin can not only be confronted, but can and indeed will ultimately be overcome. Third thing, it's an encouragement to assurance. You might not feel you've undergone a radical change in conversion. Not everyone does. You may feel your holiness and your love for God are fairly feeble. Does that mean you're not a Christian? You're not like that person that's so bright and what a change in their life. Friend, any love or true holiness is an evidence of a radical break with sin and that you're a new creature in Christ. The fourth thing, this explains why believers may have many setbacks in life. It's not always easy to think of ourselves as new creatures in Christ. Uh, Ferguson gives this illustration of an addict who may struggle to believe he is free from addiction. and He's always fear, fearful of a relapse. Is that not you? Having been addicted to sin, there's always a danger of relapse. And we must always be watching and praying. So after saying this in verse 11, there follows the exhortation in verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And there Paul reminds us that we are to live up to our privileges and new state and status in Christ. Sin will try and get the better of us. The flesh will seek to overcome, but the believer is not to allow that to happen. The reference to mortal body in these verses is noteworthy. It's obviously the physical body and the different parts that sin abuses. 
And really, how foolish to yield to the short-term lusts of the mortal dying body. We must bring it under subjection to Christ. We're to live for him. And all that we are in body and soul are to be given in service to God. So we're not to deliberately obey the lusts of the body. Fraser paraphrases it this way. And Fraser's got paraphrases at the end of most of verses which are perhaps the most useful part of his commentary. Uh, he says this, O maintain your liberty against the dethroned tyrant by constantly refusing obedience to his, these his commands. However much they be urged upon you during your mortality, when sinneth so great advantage from the wretched condition of your bodies, besides the deep-rooted half otherwise in your souls. In verse 13, Paul presents us with the option of serving two masters, sinner God. But although we've experienced a change of masters, we're to see sin for the tyrant it is to reject his advances as he tries to woo us back. And that's further expounded in the, later in the chapter. Paul concludes this section with the declaration, Sin shall not have dominion over you, you're not under law but under grace. It's a fact, and you're to remember that. You're not under the law and its condemning power. You've been delivered. The sin dominating, rather than sin dominating as life, literally acting as a lord or master, suggesting slavery to sin, we're now under grace. Sin cannot lord it when a person is under grace. There's all the resources of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that's good news, is it not? That's one reason, surely, McShane called verse 14 the sweetest word in the Bible. Well, we notice just briefly verses 15 to 23. Paul asks another question. What shall we say then? Uh, what then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. You see, verse 14 is superficially surprising, isn't it? You're not under law. So the law's got nothing to do with you. That's what some are tempted to say. Paul is horrified at the thought. He does not clarify the meaning of not under law. But that doesn't mean to say he's encouraging antinomianism. And that would take a separate paper in itself. But we just remember Christ's Sermon on the Mount. The repetition of the Ten Commandments is applying to God's people in Romans 13 and Ephesians 4 and 5. And the statement of Paul that we're not without law to God but under the law to Christ. The law still applies to us. The believer is under the law to Christ. So Paul was contrasting life in the service of sin and life in the service of God and makes it clear that the believer is someone who's exchanged masters. He's no longer the servant of sin, but of God. And thus to live in sin is a contradiction and implies that the person actually remains under the dominion of sin and death. So there's no scope for a sinful Christianity. 
And the exonomy makes it clear you can't serve two masters. It's either sin or obedience. The service of sin leads to death in all its aspects. The servants of obedience to God's revealed will produces righteousness. Before the sinner was unable to free himself, even if at times his reason and his conscience objected and troubled him. But now things are different. And you are able to fight against sin. And therefore we thank God for this deliverance. But God be thanked. Verse 17. You were the servants of sin. But that's no longer the case. While he was a servant of sin, the Lord worked in his heart. He came to obey the gospel call. He embraced and continues to embrace the doctrines and precepts that God has delivered to his people. The form of doctrine committed unto you. And this obedience of faith and practice is from the heart. It's voluntary. There's a change. You weren't like that before. That's the way it is now. So there's been a change of master. Being then made free from sin, he became the servants of righteousness. The sin. King's sin, as he, Lord's sin as he wants it to be, is no longer master. How then could we go on living in sin? And Paul uses a human analogy known to the Romans to describe these spiritual realities in verse 19. Talks after the manner of men. And basically what he says is you've spent enough of your life in sin. And so now you must yield yourselves and your members, all the faculties of your body and soul, to righteousness unto holiness. Uncleanness, the corruption and defilement of sin... And iniquity, that's lawless, rebellious behaviour, is to be rejected. Right living according to the moral law and consecration to God is now to be served. That's what we're giving ourselves to. And given the enthusiasm for sin in the past that we had, so let there now be an enthusiasm for righteousness today. And as if to drive home his point, Paul points out that the unconverted life is one of service to sin where there is no righteousness. It might have been a consistent life, but it was a life of no righteousness. It was a life that was barren and shameful and was heading for death. That's the wages of sin. And you can look back and see that's the way I was living. And it brings grief to your soul. But you've been set free from sin to pursue Holiness in the service of God. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end of our lasting life. You now have a fruitful life producing holiness and it's going to lead to eternal life. The believer has freedom to be holy. He's eternal life, life in all its fullness. A life that has begun and regeneration that will never end. The gift of God. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's Paul explaining. There's been a change of master due to the work of grace in the soul. And union with Christ is a great encouragement to thanksgiving and holy living. And rather than an excuse for sin, the gracious salvation God provides in Christ 
which not only justifies the sinner, but also breaks the power of sin and lays in that decisive breach the foundation for ongoing progressive sanctification. That's an encouragement for us to go on and pursue holiness. So let us daily reckon ourselves to have died to sin and to be alive to God through Jesus Christ. Thank you.